Good evening, dear listeners. I apologize for the late start. I was delayed with my arrival home due to, uh, issues. Anyway, uh, instead of starting the show like usual with a talk about, uh, where my, uh, Dungeons & Dragons game has gone this week, um, instead we're just gonna go straight into our story for the, um, for the week, uh, Washington Irving's. Uh, we can we can do away with the music, I think, at this point. Uh, but anyway, Washington Irving's uh, story, the adventure of the German st- German student, and I'm sure you're absolutely going to lose your head over this story. Of course, also on the show, as always, we've got uh, four new Ripley's Blue or Not shorts. Episode number four of the Strange Doctor Weird. Episode 6 of the Magnus Archives and uh, Pod People. So, we're going to go, like I said, we're just going to go right into this. Um, we're going to go right into uh, into our story. Again, unfortunately, <laughs> kind of stacked for time. But uh yeah. Uh we're gonna we're gonna have a good show tonight. And uh so. anyway, so we are gonna get to it with Washington Irving's The Adventure of the German Student. And then we'll be back. Adventure of the German Student by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Jones. 
The Adventure of the German Student. On a stormy night, in the tempestuous times of the French Revolution, a young German was returning to his lodgings at a late hour across the old part of Paris. The lightning gleamed, and the loud claps of thunder rattled through the lofty, narrow streets. But I should first tell you something about this young German. Gottfried Wolfgang was a young man of good family. He had studied for some time at Göttingen, but being of a visionary and enthusiastic character, he had wandered into those wild and speculative doctrines which have so often bewildered German students. His secluded life, his intense application, and the singular nature of his studies had an effect on both mind and body. His health was impaired, his imagination diseased, he had been indulging in fanciful speculations on spiritual essences until, like Swedenborg, he had an ideal world of his own around him. He took up a notion, I do not know from what cause, that there was an evil influence hanging over him, an evil genius or spirit seeking to ensnare him and ensure his perdition. Such an idea, working on his melancholy temperament, produced the most gloomy effects. He became haggard and desponding. His friends discovered the mental malady preying upon him, and determined that the best cure was a change of scene. He was sent, therefore, to finish his studies amidst the splendors and gaieties of Paris. Wolfgang arrived at Paris at the breaking out of the revolution. The popular delirium at first caught his enthusiastic mind and he was captivated by the political and philosophical theories of the day. But the scenes of blood which followed shocked his sensitive nature, disgusted him with society and the world, and made him more than ever a recluse. He shut himself up in a solitary apartment in the Pays Latin, the quarter of the students. There, in a gloomy street not far from the monastic walls of the Sorbonne, he pursued his favorite speculations. Sometimes he spent hours together in the great libraries of Paris, those catacombs of departed authors, rummaging among their hordes of dusty and obsolete works in his quest of food for his unhealthy appetite. He was, in a manner, a literary ghoul, feeding in the charnel house of decayed literature. Wolfgang, though solitary and recluse, was of an ardent temperament, but for a time it operated merely upon his imagination. He was too shy and ignorant of the world to make any advances to the fair, but he was a passionate admirer of female beauty, and in his lonely chamber would often lose himself in reveries on forms and faces which he had seen, and his fancy would deck out images of loveliness far surpassing the reality. While his mind was in this excited and sublimated state, a dream produced an extraordinary effect upon him. It was of a female face of transcendent beauty. So strong was the impression made that he dreamt of it again and again. It haunted his thoughts by day, his slumbers by night. In fine, he became passionately enamored of this shadow of a dream. This lasted so long that it became one of those fixed ideas which haunt the minds of melancholy men and are at times mistaken for madness. Such was Gottfried Wolfgang 
and such his situation at the time I mentioned. He was returning home late one stormy night through some of the old and gloomy streets of the Marais, the ancient part of Paris. The loud claps of thunder rattled among the high houses of the narrow streets. He came to the Place de Grave, the square where public executions are performed. The lightning quivered about the pinnacles of the ancient Hôtel de Ville, and shed flickering gleams over the open space in front. As Wolfgang was crossing the square, he shrank back with horror at finding himself close by the guillotine. It was the height of the reign of terror when this dreadful instrument of death stood ever ready, and its scaffold was continually running with the blood of the virtuous and the brave. It had that very day been actively employed in the work of carnage, and there it stood in grim array amidst a silent and sleeping city, waiting for fresh victims. Wolfgang's heart sickened within him, and he was turning, shuddering from the horrible machine, when he beheld a shadowy form cowering, as it were, at the foot of the steps which led up to the scaffold. A succession of vivid flashes of lightning revealed it more distinctly. It was a female figure, dressed in black. She was seated on one of the lower steps of the scaffold, leaning forward, her face hid in her lap and her long disheveled tresses hanging to the ground, streaming with the rain which fell in torrents. Wolfgang paused. There was something awful in this solitary monument of woe. The female had the appearance of being above the common order. He knew the times to be full of vicissitude, and that many a fair head which had once been pillowed on down now wandered houseless. Perhaps this was some poor mourner whom the dreadful axe had rendered desolate, and who sat here, heartbroken, on the strand of existence from which all that was dear to her had been launched into eternity. He approached and addressed her in the accents of sympathy. She raised her head and gazed wildly at him. What was his astonishment at beholding, by the bright glare of the lightning, the very face which had haunted him in his dreams? It was pale and disconsolate, but ravishingly beautiful. Trembling with violent and conflicting emotions, Wolfgang again accosted her. He spoke something of her being exposed at such an hour of the night, and to the fury of such a storm, and offered to conduct her to her friends. She pointed to the guillotine with a gesture of dreadful signification. "'I have no friends on earth,' said she. "'But you have a home,' said Wolfgang. "'Yes, in the grave.' The heart of the student melted at the words. "'If a stranger dare make an offer,' said he, "'without danger of being misunderstood,' I would offer my humble dwelling as a shelter, myself as a devoted friend. I am friendless myself in Paris, and a stranger in the land, but if my life could be of service, it is at your disposal, and should be sacrificed before harm or indignity should come to you. There was an honest earnestness in the young man's manner that had its effect. His foreign accent, too, was in his favor. It showed him not to be a hackneyed inhabitant of Paris. Indeed, there is an eloquence in true enthusiasm that is not to be doubted. The homeless stranger confided herself implicitly to the protection of the student. 
He supported her faltering steps across the Pont Neuf and by the place where the statue of Henry the Fourth had been overthrown by the populace. The storm had abated, and the thunder rumbled at a distance. All Paris was quiet. That great volcano of human passion slumbered for a while to gather fresh strength for the next day's eruption. The student conducted his charge through the ancient streets of the Pays Latin and by the dusky walls of the Sorbonne to the great dingy hotel which he inhabited. The old portress who admitted them stared with surprise at the unusual sight of the melancholy Wolfgang with a female companion. On entering his apartment, the student, for the first time, blushed at the scantiness and indifference of his dwelling. He had but one chamber, an old-fashioned saloon, heavily carved and fantastically furnished with the remains of former magnificence, for it was one of those hotels in the quarter of the Luxembourg Palace which had once belonged to nobility. It was lumbered with books and papers and all the usual apparatus of a student, and his bed stood in a recess at one end. When lights were brought, and Wolfgang had a better opportunity of contemplating the stranger, he was more than ever intoxicated by her beauty. Her face was pale, but of a dazzling fairness set off by a profusion of raven hair that hung clustering about it. Her eyes were large and brilliant, with a singular expression approaching almost to wildness. As far as her black dress permitted her shape to be seen, it was of perfect symmetry. Her whole appearance was highly striking, though she was dressed in the simplest style. The only thing approaching to an ornament which she wore was a broad black band round her neck, clasped by diamonds. The perplexity now commenced with the student how to dispose of the helpless being thus thrown upon his protection. He thought of abandoning his chamber to her and seeking shelter for himself elsewhere. Still, he was so fascinated by her charms, there seemed to be such a spell upon his thoughts and senses that he could not tear himself from her presence. Her manner, too, was singular and unaccountable. She spoke no more of the guillotine. Her grief had abated. The attentions of the student had first won her confidence, and then, apparently, her heart. She was evidently an enthusiast like himself, and enthusiasts soon understand each other. In the infatuation of the moment, Wolfgang avowed his passion for her. He told her the story of his mysterious dream, and how she had possessed his heart before he had even seen her. She was strangely affected by his recital, and acknowledged to have felt an impulse toward him equally unaccountable. It was the time for wild theory and wild actions. Old prejudices and superstitions were done away. Everything was under the sway of the goddess of reason. Among other rubbish of the old times, the forms and ceremonies of marriage began to be considered superfluous bonds for honorable minds. Social compacts were the vogue. Wolfgang was too much of a theorist not to be tainted by the liberal doctrines of the day. "'Why should we separate?' said he. "'Our hearts are united. In the eye of reason and honor we are as one. What need is there of sordid forms to bind high souls together?' The stranger listened with emotion. She had evidently received illumination at the same school. "'You have no home or family,' 
continued he, let me be everything to you, or rather, let us be everything to one another. If form is necessary, form shall be observed. There is my hand. I pledge myself to you for ever. For ever? said the stranger solemnly. For ever, repeated Wolfgang. The stranger clasped the hand extended to her. Then I am yours, murmured she, and sank upon his bosom. The next morning the student left his bride sleeping, and sallied forth at an early hour to seek more spacious apartments, suitable to the change in his situation. When he returned, he found the stranger lying with her head hanging over the bed, and one arm thrown over it. He spoke to her, but received no reply. He advanced to awaken her from her uneasy posture. On taking her hand, it was cold. There was no pulsation. Her face was pallid and ghastly. In a word, she was a corpse. Horrified and frantic, he alarmed the house. A scene of confusion ensued. The police was summoned. As the officer of the police entered the room, he started back on beholding the corpse. "'Great heaven!' cried he. "'How did this woman come here?' "'Do you know anything about her?' said Wolfgang eagerly. "'Do I?' exclaimed the police officer. "'She was guillotined yesterday.' He stepped forward, undid the black collar round the neck of the corpse, and the head rolled on the floor. The student burst into a frenzy. "'The fiend, the fiend has gained possession of me!' shrieked he. I am lost for ever. They tried to soothe him, but in vain. He was possessed with the frightful belief that an evil spirit had reanimated the dead body to ensnare him. He went distracted and died in a madhouse. End of The Adventure of the German Student by Washington Irving Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Billy Dixon, a buffalo hunter, defending Dodge City from an attack by Kiowa Indians, killed Chief Minimic with a single shot at a distance of one mile. The distance was carefully measured after the battle. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about an unusual act of chivalry. Some of the most unusual events have happened to people during the heat of battle. During the siege of a castle, a battle was interrupted for an act of chivalry. William Grant, a soldier, was trapped atop a flaming tower of Donsahead Castle in Erie. He was saved by an enemy bowman named John Butler, who attached a length of rope to one of his arrows and shot it up to him. Grant tied the rope to the tower and slid to safety inside the castle's walls. Believe it or not. <laughs>
and we are back. I hope you enjoyed that wonderful story. Uh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why I don't get married. Because I am terrified of the possibility of pledging my, my body and soul to an animated corpse that has been beheaded. So, of course, I joke. There are other reasons why uh, I have no interest in being married. But, uh, you know, nice joke. Anyway, hopefully our going straight to the story will kind of put us on time. Thankfully, a lot of our stuff tonight is shorter than it normally would be. I know that our uh, episode of the Magnus Archives is a little under, uh, I think, like 16 minutes. So we'll shave four minutes off that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so <laughs> it's now October. It's Halloween time. And uh, I will say, in my opinion, this is objectively the most wonderful time of the year. The days are cooler. The air crisp. The bugs have gone away. And <laughs> I'm going to admit it, I'm tired of seeing Christmas encroaching on other holidays. I, you know... When I was a kid, Christmas time was after Thanksgiving to Christmas. And now it's like Christmas starts in September. It's like, no, no, no. Halloween first. You know, let Halloween have October. And then Christmas. I don't care if Christmas takes November and December. I mean, it already has pretty much all of November anyway. But, you know, this crap where we can't even have fun for Halloween before we go straight to the depressing Christmas season is just ridiculous. Uh, Christmas is like the blob. It's insatiable, and it grows by consuming other holidays. And I say enough is enough. Anywho, uh, so yeah, uh, as you all remember, I'm still DMing my Dungeons & Dragons game. We had a delightful time last Sunday. Um, they continued getting to know their new client, uh, Heli Minerva, who is a half-elf half artificer. Um, he's an enchantment specialist. Uh, the person he's apprenticed to, Dirk, Dirk Stormbeard, forges the stuff. He enchants it. Um, and so he revealed that the reason why he asked for people from the Academy to come help is he is working on a new experiment to try and invent a reliable form of air travel, a.k.a. an airship. And he is looking for a particular way to power it in the form of what's called a um, a windstone, which in my game is basically um, solidified air elemental energy in the form of crystal. Um, he's had successful small-scale experiments using steam. The problem is he can't keep you know keep things running long enough for it to be a viable power source. Steam just for you know right now it, it, for this project is not a viable power source. So he's basically trying to conduct a small-scale experiment to make sure that um, air, you know, like a power source using air, air elemental energy would work. And so he wants them to help him go to um, an area where um, there is a portal, a tear to the elemental plane of air because basically a um, these crystallizations of elemental energy happen either near places where the air the a 
an elemental plane encroaches on uh, the material plane, or um, it can also be formed when a an elemental's corporeal form is um, destroyed, and basically um, the only physical physical part of the elemental left is their core, which is this crystal and elemental energy. And again, elementals don't die; they just simply um, lose their their form on our plane and therefore are sent back to their plane to be um, eventually reborn. I, I'm not a heartless bastard. So uh, they accepted the the contract and he offered them uh, two ways of payment. Either uh, 5,000 gold flat upon completion and he stressed that his it, this isn't about the success of his experiment. They get paid once he had once he gets back with his um uh, air crystal um or they can accept less money and get each get a, a, an enchanted item from him so um basically they can decide when they get back so there you have it uh some other hijinks ensued uh welk our um goblin ranger <laughs> uh was made invisible for a bit and wandered around his house um, and apparently he does not like Dirk Stormbeard, who is a very serious person. I, I play him very serious, very literally down to earth. Of course, dwarves are typically associated with earth. They dig, they, they work metal, they, they craft, they cut gems and stuff like that. So I'm portraying him as very down to earth, whereas ha Halley, um, not necessarily a mad scientist, but his, one of his, one of his, downsides is he doesn't he thinks about what is possible not what should what you know what can be done not what should be done uh which is why again he had that problem uh last time we talked about this which is uh his latest experiment seemed about to explode oh and it didn't explode uh false alarm there but uh yeah they got to know they got to meet um know Hallie he helped put them up um in the local in, in any local inn because Canemore is a huge city that is basically um kind of a magical steampunk is the best way to put it instead of steam everything runs on magic um or you know manipulating the weave as it would be called um so um yeah uh they accepted the mission and uh they had rest Halley showed up the next morning, got them breakfast, and basically uh, went over like the, the terms of the co you know like how the contract with the guild works, and basically uh, he'll pay them out of his research funds um, that the guild gives people like him every year, and um, they'll also get their expenses. So the inn, all that sort of you know everything, all the expenses they incur um, will be compensated. And that's kind of where we left. Unfortunately, we're going to be getting a late start this this coming week because I have to work Sunday. But uh, oh well, <laughs> what can I do, right? I gotta do my I gotta do my hard time. And again, I love Halloween. Uh, it is without a doubt my favorite time of the year. Okay, that is entirely inappropriate inappropriate for this time of the year, so we're just going to get rid of that. 
No, don't queue it up again. Production problems, folks. Production problems. Anyway, let's try this one. Blighted Forest. And this is a great time to remind you that all music you hear, all incidental music that you hear on this program are provided to us courtesy of TabletopAudio.com. TabletopAudio.com. Music where you work, podcast, or play Dungeons & Dragons. So... Anyway, we're going to get to our episode of the Magnus Archives tonight, episode 6, Squirm. Good luck, uh, <laughs> good luck suppressing your gag reflex on this one. This is where things start to get really creepy and kind of weird. Well, it's already weird, but you'll, you'll get what I'm saying. Anyway, we will be right back after this. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 6 Squirm of Timothy Hodge regarding his sexual encounter with one Harriet Lee and her subsequent death. Original statement given December 9th, 2014. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I don't know what happened, I mean. I'm sure she's dead, but I don't... Let me start from the beginning. I work as a designer. Mainly freelance, with a few more regular gigs with companies who like my work. I also have, well, had, the luxury of a flat I'd managed to get set up so I could do most of my work there. This meant, when I have a big job, I spend quite a lot of time not leaving my home. Not the most stable of employment, but I got quite good at balancing it so that after a big project I left myself a few days or maybe even a week before I had to get started on the next one. I find it's important that I use this time to unwind and blow off a bit of steam, as when I've got work I often end up missing out on the regular weekend. Drinking and clubbing are my relaxation methods of choice, usually down Camden or Old Street, and while I'll admit I'm not above the occasional party drug, I swear that I was stone-cold sober when all this took place. That night in particular, it was about three weeks ago now, I'd just finished a big job for one of my more demanding clients, and... I wanted to get a bit wrecked. Unfortunately, none of my friends were free to join me, not surprising as it was a Thursday in the middle of November, so it didn't feel worth heading all the way into the city. Luckily, I live in Brixton, which means I have a few decent options almost on my doorstep. 
and I happened to know that the Dog Star ran a pretty decent club night on Thursdays, I decided to go along and enjoy myself. I did enjoy myself in the end, despite the crowds and the music. I wasn't feeling quite as wild as I expected, but I drank a bit and danced plenty. Okay, maybe I wasn't quite as sober as I said earlier, but I certainly wouldn't have called myself drunk. Now, I wasn't particularly looking to get laid that night, but I know I'm not an unattractive guy and I live local, so I'm always alert, shall we say, for any possibility of finding myself a partner. It was closing in on midnight when I saw her. She was skinny and had that student look which could have put her age anywhere between 19 and 28. Her hair was long, dyed a deep henna red, and she wore torn tights and too much eyeliner. Exactly the sort of girl I go for. She was lurking on the dance floor, and I wasted no time trying to catch her eye. It was harder than I'd guessed, though, as her attention seemed to be mainly focused on the doors. At first I thought she was waiting for someone, but the more I watched her, the more I saw the nervousness in her eyes. Maybe even fear. It was at that point she noticed me, and our eyes just locked, you know? She came over, and we began to dance together. She was excellent, far better than me and moved in a smooth, rolling sort of rhythm that made the word writhe leap suddenly to my mind. I offered her a drink, but she refused, gesturing instead for water, which I happily got. I couldn't really hear her over the music, but you don't go to these nights for conversation. Besides, I heard her loud and clear when she leaned over and asked me if I wanted her. I said yes. Looking back, it was stupid, of course it was, but she was beautiful, and there was something in the way she moved that really got me. She smiled when I said yes, and for a moment it looked less like a smile of anticipation, and more like a smile of relief. Outside the dog star, it was much quieter, and we had a chance to talk. She told me her name was Harriet, and she was very pleased to hear I live locally, as it was a cold night. She held my arm tightly as we walked back towards my street. At first I thought this was for warmth, as she didn't have a coat and I doubted the light jacket she was wearing had much insulation. When I looked at her, though, I saw she was looking around the same way she'd been watching the door earlier. Her nervousness was even more obvious now, and she was peering intently down every street we passed. I asked her if anything was wrong and tried to tell her that I lived in a nice neighbourhood, she was perfectly safe, that sort of thing. She nodded and agreed, but still seemed jumpy. When we were about halfway, she started scratching her arms. At first I thought she was just rubbing them for warmth, but after a few seconds it became clear that she was scratching them quite hard, leaving obvious red marks where her fingernails dug in. I was starting to suspect something was wrong and asked Harriet if there was anything the matter, anything I should know. She just insisted we head back to my place as quickly as possible. I agreed, since I figured that whatever the problem was, we could deal with it easier in my flat than on the cold streets at midnight. By the time we reached my building, she was staring over her shoulder in near panic. I followed her gaze, but couldn't see anything, so quickly opened the front door and let her in. She seemed to relax a bit once we were both in the relatively warm corridor, with the door shut firmly behind us. My flat was on the third floor, and even though, as I said, I don't live in a bad area, I did have an extra deadlock on my door. Harriet visibly relaxed when she saw it, and more so when it was closed. The skittish glances and scratching her arms stopped almost immediately. 
I offered her a coffee or tea to warm up. She just asked for a glass of water, said she was feeling a bit unwell. We sat down, and once I'd fetched her water and fixed myself a coffee, we talked for a while. My instincts had been right. She was a student, studying art. She hadn't been in London long, she said, was originally from Salisbury, and had been finding it difficult recently. When she left that pause, I saw in her eyes hints of that panic I'd seen on the street. I asked her to tell me what was wrong, said something was clearly bothering her, and I'd like to help. She got very quiet for a few moments and then nodded. She told me she'd been mugged the night before last, although the way she said the word mugged made it sound like she wasn't sure. I just nodded and let her continue talking. She lived up an archway on a street named Elthorne Road and had been walking home around midnight when she saw a woman lying face down on the pavement. This woman wore a long red dress and Harriet said she could see it shifting in the orange glow of the street lamps, as though something was moving underneath it. Harriet was close to her house, which she shared with several other students, so she said she was maybe less careful than she should have been, and had approached, calling out and asking if the woman needed help. There was no response, but all movement stopped, and the red dress went very still. Suddenly, far quicker than Harriet could have expected, the woman leapt to her feet and sprinted directly towards her, seizing her by the shoulders and pushing her back against a nearby wall. It happened so fast that Harriet said she had never really gotten a good look at the woman beyond her dress, a head of long matted black hair and wide staring eyes. The woman growled something at her, but Harriet couldn't make it out. She tried to ask what the mugger wanted, but... As she did, she felt a sudden pain in her stomach as though she'd been stabbed, which is exactly what she thought had happened. She told me that she had fallen to the ground and lost consciousness almost immediately. When she awoke, the woman in the red dress was gone. Harriet had expected to find herself lying in a pool of blood from her stomach wound, but could instead find no trace of any injury anywhere except for some scraped knees where she had fallen to the floor. She had staggered home and tried to sleep it off. Since then, she said she'd been seeing that woman everywhere she went. She felt like she was being followed all the time and couldn't stay in her own home, as whenever she did, it was like this weight was dragging her down and her skin became so itchy as to be nearly unbearable. Harriet had apparently tried to go to the police, but said as she approached the station she was overcome with such a powerful nausea that she threw up on the pavement. She had tried the hospital, but they just told her there was nothing obvious and to make an appointment with her doctor. She had been spending the last three days just wandering in cafes and bars and clubs, anywhere there were enough people that she felt safe. She just didn't know what to do. By now Harriet was crying and I felt like a complete asshole for having brought the issue up. I mumbled some apologies. I don't know what I said. I was just trying to make her feel better. Not sure what I expected to happen, but I certainly didn't expect her to kiss me at that moment. I know, I know, she was vulnerable and I feel like a... But I swear I wasn't trying to take advantage. I asked her again and again if she was sure, but... She just kept nodding and dragged me to the bedroom. I mean, we had sex. There's not much more to say about that, really. 
The important thing is what happened afterwards. As we were lying there in bed, exhausted, I rested my head against her shoulder. I was about to say something or other, but before I could, I felt something move. It's hard to describe exactly, but it wasn't her shoulder that moved. It was something inside it, under the skin. It squirmed ever so slightly against my cheek. I shot up in bed, but the only indication that she'd noticed anything amiss was that she reached over and absent-mindedly scratched where I'd been lying. I started to relax, lie down again. Maybe I'd just imagined it, but... At that moment, she doubled over and groaned in sudden pain. Her eyes went wide, and she clutched her stomach tightly. I tried to see what was wrong, asked if I could help, but she just pushed me away. I had no idea what to do, so I ran out and towards the bathroom. My mind was going completely blank, and I couldn't remember whether I had any painkillers or indigestion medicine, or should I be calling an ambulance? I wasn't sure, and I ended up rooting through my medicine cabinet looking for, I don't know, anything that might have helped. I could still hear Harriet moaning in agony from the bedroom and had just made up my mind to call for an ambulance when I heard something that stopped me dead in my tracks. It's hard to really describe the sound that came from the bedroom. The closest I could come would be to say it sounded like an egg being dropped onto a stone floor, a sort of wet, cracking thump. And then silence. Harriet was no longer making any noise at all. I slowly, very slowly walked back towards the bedroom. The door was open, but I hadn't turned the light on, so there was little to be seen inside except darkness. I could have turned on the light in the hall, I suppose, but something inside made me think that I didn't want a good look inside that room. I stopped at the threshold. The only illumination at all came from a thin sliver of light coming in through the gap in the curtains from a street lamp outside. You'll have to excuse me. What I saw is difficult to put down on paper, but it's the only way to explain why I had to do it. Why setting my flat alight and standing naked in the winter streets until the fire brigade arrived was far better than spending another second in that place. And yes, I admit here I set the fire myself. Show it to the police for all I care, I just need someone to understand. The room was unrecognisable when I returned. There was a shape on the bed where Harriet had laid, but it wasn't her anymore. I could barely make out anything, even remotely human, in the pile of pitted and warped flesh that now remained. The bed itself was slick and shiny with a dark fluid that dripped off the hanging sheets and onto the floor. But what truly repulsed me, what made me flee as I did, was what moved and squirmed on all of it. They covered every surface, the floor, the bed, what used to be Harriet, even the ceiling. A thick, moving carpet of pale, writhing worms. The flat burned for a very long time. Statement ends. This story is concerning. 
not because of Mr. Hodge's experience, although I'm sure it was very upsetting. If it was true, of course. In fact, the police report that Sasha was able to acquire throws doubt on much of his story. While Mr. Hodge's flat did indeed catch fire on November 20th of last year, there was apparently no evidence of arson, and no human remains found inside, despite the fact that the fire was brought under control long before any significant damage was done to the structure of the building. They did find some charred organic matter in the bedroom, but it was tested and apparently wasn't human, though the report doesn't list whether its source was ever determined. I will say it does link up with the reported disappearance of one Harriet Lee, a student at Roehampton, who was reported missing shortly after this statement was originally given. She seems to match the description given here. Still, that's not really what concerns me either, though obviously it's a tragic loss of life, etc., etc. No. What I find quite alarming is that if Mr. Hodge's recollection of Harriet's tale is correct, and she was attacked by a woman in a red dress in Archway, then that matches the description and last known location of Jane Prentice. I can't find any evidence that my predecessor took follow-up action on this statement, so I've taken the step of reporting Mr. Hodges to the ECDC. We were unable to locate him to request a follow-up interview, and if he has had intercourse with one of Prentice's victims, then they'll need to deal with him sooner rather than later. I just hope it's not too late already. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell, Mike LeBeau, and Murray Porter. And directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at TheRustyQuill, or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Olaf Tryggvason, who became King Olaf I of Norway, avenged the murder of his foster father by slaying the killer with a hatchet. Yet, at the time, he was only nine years old. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a prophecy of doom. There is no logical explanation why many times dreams come true with uncanny accuracy. On December 3rd, 1874, Mrs. Albert E. Royce of Bowling Green, Ohio, told her family that she had dreamed she would get sick on November 27th, 1877, and that she would die on the following December 3rd. As it happened, she became sick and died exactly as she had dreamed it three years earlier. Believe it or not.
And we are back. There you go. Horrible, wretched, worm people. So, yeah. And again, what we're seeing here is more lore, more background being developed for Magnus. It's, you know, like... It's no longer just random case files. You know, there's... You know, again, they're, they're building up the series lore. Um, you'll be hearing a lot. Uh, from Jane Prentice as we continue in what is season one of the Magnus Archives. Let's kill that music! Abandoned windmill? And, uh, yeah, so there you have it. Magnus Archives, episode six. Squirm, which is also the title of a movie that was covered on Mystery Science Theater, a very bad 70s uh, horror flick about worms. So there you have it. So yeah, well, it looks like we're doing okay. We're gonna, like I said, we're gonna go a little long since we had a late start tonight. Um, but the show should still be around two hours. So what we're going to do is we, um, we're going to get ready to do our episode of The Strange Doctor Weird, uh, episode number four, Death in the Everglades. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back after this, and then at which point we'll be going on to our episode, our OTR, all-time radio episode. Um, our first episode of CBS Real Mystery Theater, which was an attempt in the 70s to basically revive classic radio drama. And, and don't get me wrong, it worked. It lasted for uh, around 10 years. It had a pretty successful run, hosted by the legendary E.J. Marshall. I'm very excited. Um, and that's going to run a little longer than our normal one because um, Radio Mystery Theater was an hour-long format, including commercials. I cut the commercials out. Runtime is about 40 minutes. That said, uh, again, we have, you know, technically we're late, we're running behind, but because I was late, we have a glut of time. So we're going to be fine. Anyway, we're going to get to The Strange Doctor Weird, Episode 4, Death in the Everglades, from November 28th, 1944. Then another uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not short. Most of these seem to be pretty solid in terms of uh, the fact that, you know, like the historical facts, like the King Olaf one, that's something that, you know, again, yeah, history can be exaggerated. That said, it's in the records, you know, I mean, they kept records uh, even during the, the Dark Ages. So a lot of the stuff that you've heard is actually verifiably historic, you know, truth. Um, again... Ripley did often stretch the truth, and a lot of, of the exhibits in his museum are questionable, but, like, these shorts, um, you know, like I said, is the truth stretched? Yeah. Is it complete horse hockey? I don't think so. You know, and even if it isn't, isn't it fun? Anyway, let's cue up some music.
we will be right back after this. After tonight's episode of The Strange Doctor Weird. Adam Hatz presents The Strange Dr. Weird. Good evening. Come in, won't you? Why, what's the matter? Surely you're not nervous. Perhaps it will calm you if I tell you a story. The story of a prodigal son's homecoming. I call it Murder Comes Home. My story, Murder Comes Home, starts in a small house on the bank of a river just outside the city. Mrs. Barnes, who was very feeble, lived there with her younger son, Tom. One evening after the doctor had paid her a visit, Tom stopped him as he was leaving. Doctor, tell me the truth. How is she? She's very weak, Tom. Unless we can persuade her to go to the hospital within a few days, I'm afraid I won't be able to save her. I see but you know how she is about not leaving this house until my brother Harry comes home again. Mm, she hasn't seen him for ten years, has she? No. She doesn't know that he's in the state penitentiary for life, for murder. It would kill her if she ever found out. I see. Well, perhaps you can get her to agree to come to the hospital just for a few days. Uh, suppose you go in and see, huh? I'll wait downstairs. All right, Doctor. I'll try. Tom, is that you? Yes, Mother. Would you like me to close the window? No, Tom. Leave it open. It's foggy out, isn't it? Yes. You can hardly see your hand in front of your face. I like to hear the river. I've heard it every day for 30 years. For 30 years, I've watched the cliffs on the riverbank coming closer and closer closer as the river eats them away. Mother, I wanted to talk to you about that. Yes? It's not safe here now. We're going to have to move out of this house soon. Not till Harry comes back, Tom. He wouldn't know where to find me if we moved. Yes, he would, Mother. Please listen to me. You could... No, Tom. Not till Harry comes home. He is coming home soon. I... I know he is. I, I can feel it. 
he'll be here soon, Tom. Then we can move after Harry gets here. All right, Mother. I can feel him getting closer and closer. It won't be long now, Tom. We must be ready for him. Yes, of course. Good night, Mother. It's no use, Doctor. She has a mind made up that Harry will be here any minute. Well, that's rather... Excuse me. Certainly. Hello? Yes, speaking. Oh, hello, Sheriff. What? He did? Yes. Yes, I understand. Of course I will. Goodbye. Doctor, that was Sheriff Goodright. He said Harry and a companion escaped from the penitentiary early this evening by killing a guard. What? Then they stopped the motorist and took his car. The sheriff thinks they may be heading this way. Maybe that's why Mother felt Harry would be here soon. Our cast returns in a moment with the final action in tonight's story of Dr. Weird. Meantime, I'd like to ask good doctor one little question. What question, young man? Uh, do you always think of horrible, terrifying things? No. Only last evening I was out getting a breath of air. Ah, you breathe. Yes. And I saw some Adam hats. They were fine-looking hats. I walked in, tried one on. And what do you think? What? I look just like a person. Well, thank you, Doctor. Gentlemen, if Dr. Weird can look just like a human being by just putting on an Adam hat, think how much a smart Adam hat can do for a normal-looking man. Seriously, I hope you'll stroll by an Adam hat store yourself sometime soon. The latest fall and winter line is in. You'll see a great variety of up-to-the-minute hats in every size, color, and style, including the Adam 5. Made of fine fur felt and only $5. You'll be proud to wear an Adam, and you'll be correct, too. Select your favorite at any price from $3.45 to $10. There are thousands of Adam hat stores and authorized dealers from coast to coast. Now, here's that man again, Dr. Weird. Now I'll finish my story... Murder comes home. After the doctor left, Tom remained on guard with a loaded revolver. And just after midnight... Hello, Tom. So you did come here. Uh, where else would I go? Come on, Jake. Okay. No, you can't come in. It would kill Mother Duke. Oh, yes. Hmm. How is Mother? Isn't that her calling now? Quiet. Yes, Mother? Tom, is that Harry? Yes, Mother, it's Harry. Come to see you. Oh, I, I knew you'd come, son. I'll be up in a minute, Mother. Oh, well, Tom, aren't you going to ask us in? Now that she knows you're here, I have no choice. Thanks. Oh, Tom, meet a pal of mine, Jake Paget. 
What is this, Harry? You said we'd be safe here. This mug meets us with a gun in his mouth. Oh, don't worry about Tom. He'll warm up to us presently. Now, you stay here and talk to him while I run upstairs and say hello to my dear old mother. Mother was so glad to see me, Tom, that you really ought to put that gun away and ask us to stay a while. Yes, Harry. Now you are going to stay until the sheriff gets here anyway. Hey, you're not going to turn us in. No. No. I told Mother I couldn't stay, that I had a long journey to make. But suppose tomorrow she learns that I've been arrested. Then what? It would kill her. But I'll see to it that she doesn't find out. And I'll see to it she does. If you turn me in... You'd kill your own mother? That won't be necessary if you'll just be reasonable. All we want is to hide here for 24 hours. I... I... Listen. A car just stopped outside. Probably the sheriff. Well, Tom, make up your mind. All right. Get in the closet there, both of you. I'll set the sheriff away. That's well, more like it. Come on, Jake. How is you? Coming. Oh, what's you, Sheriff? Yeah, Tom. We're sure your brother's someplace in the neighborhood. Thought we... You might have come here. Seen any sign of him? No, not yet, anyway. Uh, you never know. Want me to leave a man with you just in case? No, no, I'll be all right. I have a gun. All right, okay, I'll be back later. All right, Sheriff. So long. All right, he's gone. You can come out now. Now, you're acting like a brother, Tom. Yeah, that's more like it. The Sheriff said he'd be back later, though. Well, in that case, suppose I just take the oh, gun of oh, yours, Tom. You can't... Good work, Harry. Now, Tom, you just do as we agreed and everything will be all right. We can't get any place in this fog tonight. It's so thick you can't see a foot ahead of you. But tomorrow night, they'll be off guard. We'll be able to get away. Harry, listen. Dogs. They've brought up bloodhounds to track us with. And they're coming this way. What do we do? It's no use hiding. If the dogs track us here, they'll know we're inside someplace. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll we're trapped. for it. If we can get two or three of them, we may have a chance to break through. No, Harry, listen. I've got a better idea. Oh, yeah? What is it? My rowboat. You remember how we used to run the rapids when we were kids? Yeah, I remember. The boat's still there. In this fog, you could float down the river 20 miles before morning. Yeah. They'll never catch us that way. I promise they won't. You can go out the kitchen door and down the steps into the backyard. Then follow the path to the riverbank. Okay. Jake, get going. Through the kitchen there. I got you. I'm on my way. Now, Tom, I'll just take this coat of yours. Hurry! I'm coming. Hurry. I hear somebody outside. Okay, Tom. Get going, Harry. I'm going. They'll never catch me. Never. Tom, over. Tom, why didn't you... Well, man, what's the matter? I had to do it. I had to. I'd have killed you. What are you talking about, Tom? Harry and Jake. They were here. I told them how to escape through the kitchen and down the back steps to the path that leads down to the riverbank. To my boat. Well, they won't get away. I'm going after... Wait, sir. Wait, wait. 
nothing. Let go my arm, Tom. I'll get those two murdering rats. Sheriff, wait. You don't understand. Shine your flashlight down there at the foot of the steps. <sighs> Great glory. There ain't any ground at the foot of those steps. When they stepped off the last step, they had a sheer hundred foot drop to the river and the rocks down there. Well, they escaped this time right enough. From human law, anyway. Yes, Harry and Jake escaped, all right. Even if it was in a way they didn't quite expect. And Mrs. Barnes at last agreed to move. Just in time, too. The house was merely standing on the edge of a cliff. And it was only a month or so before another slide carried the house away completely. Do you live at the top of a cliff? If you do, you... Oh, you have to go now. Too bad. But perhaps you'll drop in again soon. I'm always home. Just Look for the house on the other side of the cemetery. The house of Dr. Weir. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley. Believe it or not. Frankie Silvers of Toll River Valley, North Carolina, was sentenced to death for killing her husband with an axe. She mounted the gallows eating a piece of cake and refused to be hanged until she had enjoyed the last crumb, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a very unusual pony. Here's the story of a pony that certainly was a child's best friend. In Lurwick, which is in the Shetland Islands, a pony saved a child from drowning. Seeing the youngster in trouble, it dove into the sea from a high bank, swam to the child's aid, and then scrambled ashore with its teeth holding the child by the clothing, all without a human command. Believe it or not. And we are back. Apparently that was not Death in the Everglades. Um, so I'm beginning to think that the title on these files is wrong. Um, I'll have to reach out to the people I got it from, the old-time radio researchers group, 
and uh, see what they got to say about that because they're the they, you know, they post the stuff on archive.org and they say it's certified. And, you know, it's like, mm, no, no, it's not because you clearly certified it wrong. So yeah, there we go. Don't build your house if you're a criminal. Don't go to a, your brother's house that's built on a cliff. It's just not going to end well. So there we go. And of course, again, once again, my secret is out. Yeah. I once had a lucrative business selling hats. I'm a lot older than I look. <laughs> anyway. We are going to get to our old-time radio show for tonight, and it is an adaptation of our story from the night, The Adventure of German Student. It is the September 17th, 1979 broadcast of episode 1013 of CBS Radio Mystery Theater, The Guillotine. And I didn't reveal that in the show promotional post because, you know... If you haven't read the German student before, the adventure of the German student before, you don't know what it's about. But if I put, if I gave the title of this radio show, you know, being the guillotine, it's not much of a stretch. So, it is what it is, as as they would say. Um. So yeah, we are gonna. We're going to get ready and go. And uh, again, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for bearing with the problems tonight. Um, show post should be up shortly. And once we get back, we'll talk about what you're going to hear this week. This, uh, you know, upcoming week on Radio for Humans. Really excited about this Friday's... Um, edition of um, It Came From Cleveland because they're going to be talking about one of the greatest living voice actors out there, Mark Hamill. Uh, of course, most people are going to know him as Luke Skywalker, but uh, the man, I mean, he, he is one of the most prolific and talented voice actors out there. I would say uh, he's probably only surpassed by Frank Welker. Um... You know, Dr. Claw, Megatron, I mean, he's, you know, Frank Welker has been doing this for a while. And again, Mark Hamill, Frank Welker, they kind of built voice acting into um, the business, you know, the, the, the career it is today. You know, and of course, June Foray helped pave that road too. But uh, speaking of voice acting, before we get... Uh, to this, I just want to say um, that um, a couple weeks ago I got some disturbing news and I actually meant to, to mention it sooner. However, um, so basically earlier this year, voice actor Tom Kane suffered a stroke um, and strokes are never good. Of course, you know, time loss is brain loss and I'm not going to make any tasteless jokes because this is this is someone I, I genuinely respect and admire and unfortunately because the stroke so badly damaged the speech centers of his brain 
he is unfortunately having to take an early retirement. Um, which is sad, because he had so much left to offer. Um, however, you can go to his page, Tom Kane, um, and he has a, a um, his son has set him up a, a you know, P.O. box for fan mail. You know, maybe you could do him a solid and let him know you're pulling for him, you're thinking about him. Unfortunately, I don't, uh, from what I've read and been, you know, the information provided, I don't think he's going to be coming out of retirement. I think that, you know, based, again, based on what I've read, the damage to the speed center was just, uh, um, too extensive. But knowing his fans still care and are, are wishing him well and are rooting for him to, you know, in this struggle, I think would mean a lot. So, uh, please consider it. Anyway, we're going to get to it. CBS Radio Mystic Theater from September 17th, 1979. The Guillotine. Oh yeah, this is going to be fun. A collection of short stories by Washington Irving was published under the title of Tales of a Traveler. One section of the book is charmingly headed Strange Stories by a Nervous Gentleman. And it is from this section that we have chosen the tale that follows, one we call The Guillotine. I am of a brooding and introspective nature. It has always been thus. It was never that I scorned the follies and the fripperies of this world. Indeed, I begrudged others their free and easy access to such vanities, their effortless enjoyment of them, with a profound and a scorching envy that was driving me to the very edge of my self-control. I felt about to howl with the torment of my incapacity. In my agony, I turned to the only friend I had, my fellow student, my compatriot, the sole human who had tolerated my intolerable moods without blame, without censure, without what surely would have finished me off, without abandoning me. Gottfried, Gottfried, my dear friend. Help me, Carl, help me. But of course, just tell me what I can do. I... I don't know. Is it money? Do you need money? Money? If it were only money, it... It is myself. My tortured, restless, squirming self that looks for rest and cannot find it. That searches for peace and watches it retreat with every step I take. Desperation tracks my heels when I walk the streets. Melancholy meets me at every corner. And gloom. Deep impenetrable gloom fills the house where I live. Gottfried, you are so much more clever than I. Clever? <laughs> you call me clever? You shut yourself away from others. Oh, no, not from you. You are my link to life, my only tie to the real world about me. Then let me tell you straight out what I think. Your manner of living, your fevered absorption in your studies, 
your avoidance of the company of most men and all women... But I, I never know what to say to them. All these things combined, Gottfried, have impaired your health. You are haggard and pale. Your shoulders are bent. Your eyes have a look that is not quite of this world. Forgive me, my friend, if I speak roughly. No, no, you speak truly. But I think it is not alone your body that is failing. I think your imagination has become, forgive the word, diseased. Have I said too much? Have I gone too far? I must tell you that of late I have been studying many philosophical theories. Not just the recognized ones, but those more obscure, more perhaps radical. You have the mind for such weighty things, Gottfried. I've gone back to the Egyptians, to the Hindu. I walked with Paracelsus in his garden. Of late, I've immersed myself in the teachings of Swedenborg and his new Jerusalem church. Swedenborg? I don't think I know He's who... a Swedish philosopher, a religious writer. He died a few years back, but he claimed to have established direct communication with a spiritual world. How did he do that? Through the opening of his spiritual senses... And you? Well, can you? Has that happened to you? <laughs> of course not. It didn't happen to Swedenborg until he was 57 years of age. But it might happen, or, or something very like it might happen to me, if only... What, Gottfried? If only what? If only I could escape. Escape whom? Escape what? An evil influence, Carl. It hangs over me night and day. Oh, how can you say such things? Because I know them to be true. There's an evil genius, a vile spirit, whose sole intent is to ensnare me and to ensure my damnation. You really believe it? It is not so much a matter of believing, Carl. It is a matter of conviction. Conviction that it is so. And being convinced that it is so, it is so. I think I can understand that. Though I am not sure, I have never been given over much to fancies of that sort. I'm more of a, a practical man, you might say. Still, in a way, I can understand how a man like yourself could seize upon such an idea and become a, well, let's say a victim of it. Yes, yes, you've hit on the word, Carl. I am a victim, a victim of my own imaginings. Yes, you are exquisitely correct. <laughs> well, then... If, if I could go on and, and make a further suggestion... By all means, speak out. It's my thought that you should leave here and go to Paris. Paris? You could finish your studies there as well as here. Well, the Sorbonne is as fine a university as one could wish. And Paris is such a splendid city. A change of scene. A change of company, perhaps. Female company in particular. Who knows what all that might do for you? Yes. Who knows? First, it seemed that Paris might indeed be the answer to my dilemma. The revolution was breaking out and beginning to spread. I had studied Jean-Jacques Rousseau's social contract, paragraph by paragraph, and his theory of the equality of man and representational government had captivated my mind. More than that, the delirium of the people of Paris, their fervor, their ecstasy, it seemed that simply to live, in such an atmosphere would be enough to cleanse my mind of its morbidity. I found myself a room on a narrow, dark street in the Latin Quarter, not far from the monastic walls of the Sorbonne. 
the concierge who showed me my quarters was as gloomy as the street itself. There it is. Two francs. It, um, it has a window? You can see that it has. Ah, yes. I'll need a table to put in front of the window. Could you arrange that? <clears throat> and uh, a straight chair to put in front of the table. Is that possible? Uh, I am a student at the Sorbonne. I'll be doing some writing. I'll uh, arrange it. Uh, could you also arrange for an armoire? I have only a very few clothes, but I will... There are nails on the wall. Oh, oh yes, yes, I see. Um, now, about bookshelves, I have very few clothes, but I have a great many books, and I expect to have more, so... I have no bookshelves. I see. Well, um, for the time being, I suppose I can stack them on the floor, or... <laughs> Under the bed. I'll manage. Two francs. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Mm. <coughs> uh, there you are. Mm. The uh, students at the Sorbonne seem very excited about the, uh, the uprising. Students are always excited about something. And the establishment of the National Assembly. A gesture. Oh, but, madame, it confirmed the revolution. The king will never again be absolute. If not the king, then it will be another. How can you be so pessimistic? Why, the day the people captured the Bastille. I, I was not here, but I heard of it. The king went to the guild hall. He gave in. He even wore the red, white, and blue cockade, I was told. Uh, that is true, isn't it? Oh, yes. Well, then, the arrest of the royal family. Yes, yes. Uh, and yes. the march on Paris from Marseille. Oh, what a thrill. They managed 18 miles a day, I'm told. <laughs> Imagine that. In midsummer and drawing their cannon with them. <laughs> no body of men has ever accomplished such an extraordinary feat. Yes. Yes. Uh, the king, the queen, the dauphin, all imprisoned in the tower of the temple. Oh, yes. And the establishment of the Committee of Public Safety. You approve? Well, how could I not approve, madame, with the great Marat heading the committee? Marat is a madman. No, no, not mad. <laughs> or if he is not quite sane, that is due to his ardent belief in equality and government by general consent. The massacres of September... More than a thousand killed? Well, I, I know very little of that. You know very little of anything, monsieur. It's your youth, perhaps. I should be generous and call it that. Well, it's true. I'm young, but I'm not completely ignorant of the world and its ways. <clears throat> not completely. You are. You are ignorant and you are arrogant. Madame, I must protest. Have you heard of a man called Robespierre? Yes, I've heard of him. Mm. He is idolized by the people. He will join the Committee of Public Safety before the year is out. And the king will lose his head. Yes, in January of 1793, King Louis XVI was guillotined. Six months later, Robespierre joined the Committee of Public Safety. Hundreds upon hundreds passed before the Revolutionary Tribunal and were executed. Donto, the man I had idealized, was among the victims. So was Madame Elizabeth, sister to the king. So was the queen. I sickened and turned away. The terror had begun, and I shrank from the sight of it. I spent the better part of my days in the libraries, those catacombs of departed authors rummaging among their hordes of dusty and obsolete works in quest of food for my unhealthy appetite. I became, in a manner of speaking, a literary ghoul, feeding in the charnel house 
of decayed literature. Washington Irving was born just as the seeds of the French Revolution were starting to germinate. By the time he was of school age, the revolution had been confirmed by the establishment of the National Assembly. At the age of eight, he was old enough to hear from his elders of the March on Paris in the spring. His ninth and tenth years must have been filled with rumors of the executions in Paris, years which came to be known as the Terror. I'll be back shortly to continue with Act Two. Washington Irving started out to become a lawyer, but his health was not robust, and as was very much the habit with doctors of his time, he was advised to travel abroad and so build up his constitution. We shall never know what sort of lawyer he might have become, but we know for a certainty that he developed into a first-class writer, and it was his early visit to Europe which roused his interest in the gothic tales of terror and romance, such as the one we have adapted for you. It would have been just as well had I never come to Paris. I was as lonely here as I had been at home, as incapable of establishing human contact as ever. I sank deeper and deeper into my studies of writers long deceased and saw no one, no one at all but the old crone who was concierge of the establishment where I had my cell-like chamber. Yes, who is it? Uh, come in. Someone to see you. What? Uh, me? Uh, someone wishes to see me? So he says. Well, who is it? Didn't you ask him? He spoke as though he knew you from elsewhere, as though you were old friends. C Carl? Did he say his name is Carl? I told you he didn't say. I didn't yes, ask. Yes, of course. It's, of course. It's Carl. Who else could it be? What shall I say to him, your friend, Carl? Well, ask him kindly to come up at once, if he will, or I'll come down. Anything at all. Tell him he's most welcome. Would you believe it? I was trembling all over. Clumsily, I tried to put the room into some kind of order. I kicked books under the bed. I scraped together papers and notebooks from my table and tried to stack them into a semblance of neatness. I patted the narrow little bed and drew the spread more evenly over its lumpy surface. I was scurrying about like the most frantic housewife when I heard Carl's voice from the doorway. It's only I, you know, Godfrey. Only, only you, Carl. Carl, come in, please sit down. Carl, I am so happy to see you. you. You don't know. You just don't know. I am happy that you are happy. To have someone to talk to. Someone someone like you. Someone who... who understands. I... Uh, I did not know till now, till, till this very moment, how much I have needed someone I could talk to, to open my heart to... Wait now. You mean there's been no one here in Paris? No. No one at all. I... I have spent my time at the Sorbonne, in the libraries, in the museums. But, Gottfried, no one can live entirely within libraries and museums. Yes, I, I know. The moment I saw you standing there, I knew. It begins to look as though I gave you bad advice, counseling you to come to Paris. No, no, no. It, it was sound advice. At least it seemed to be, at first. Paris seemed to be the tonic I was needing. 
At first, you say? Well, then what? Well, is it? Oh, wait. I haven't offered you anything to drink. Uh, must have a bottle of wine around here somewhere. Yes, yes. Here we are. <laughs> Cheap sort, I'm afraid. Very ordinary Beaujolais. I I'm sorry. I, I could go Godfrey, out. But... Godfrey, don't excite yourself. Think of whom you're speaking to. It's Carl, your friend. Think of all the evenings we shared a bottle of the cheapest wine and found it sufficient because of the pleasure of each other's company. Yes. Now, can't we open this bottle in the same spirit? Of course, of course we can. Forgive me. My, my manners have grown coarse. It comes from being too much alone. Uh, there must be another glass somewhere around. I'm sure I had one. Oh, here we are. Now, Carl. Gottfried. To friendship. Our friendship. Yours and mine. You know, I am beginning to feel almost like a man again. Tell me what has brought you to this sorry state. The blood. I, I beg your pardon? You said the blood? Uh, you know how wildly enthusiastic I was with the political theories of the revolution and the philosophy behind them. They seem to open a vista of progress for mankind. A wide and open road down which we could travel toward the perfect state. You were always one to look for perfection. And why not? Why not? Well, why were we put on earth if not to search for the perfect state? Are we supposed to wallow in the mediocre and pretend that it suffices? Roll about in filth and call it good? Is that our reason for being? Is that what we, now, what now we were created for in God's image? Dear friend, you must try not to excite yourself. To excite myself? It is enough to drive me mad that the visions were all forsaken and the visionaries turned to killing. The dreams were trampled and the dreamers drowned themselves in blood. Carl, there are times when I think it has done just that. You mean... Listen to me, Carl. Let me tell you something. I must tell someone this. There's only you. No one else. Of course, Gottfried. You can tell me anything. Carl, in the most ancient part of Paris, where the Hotel de Ville lies, you know the place? I have heard of it. On the Place de Grève, the open space in front of the Hotel de Ville. That is where they have erected the guillotine. I have heard, yes. This instrument of death stands ever ready. The scaffold runs all day with blood. All day, each day. Victims are dragged there and made to kneel. A heavy blade is released. It slides swiftly down vertical guides. And the head... The head of the victim, oh, Heavenly Father, it is too horrible, too terrible. I can't endure it. Yeah. You mustn't take these crimes upon yourself. A revolution has never been accomplished without shedding blood. Yes, but this has become a mania for blood, an insatiable thirst. Even now, at this moment, while the city sleeps, that horrible engine stands, grim and silent, waiting for fresh victims. It sickens me. It congeals my heart. It freezes my blood. I understand. I do. And that is why I have turned away to the study of ancient writers. Dead thinkers. Anything to separate me from the awful present. My poor Gottfried. I am so sorry. So sorry. Thank you. 
I am ashamed to accept your pity, yet I thank you for it, which shames me all the more that I should be grateful. But there, there must be other things. There must be more to life. Come, let's finish this bottle of wine before I have to leave. Leave? You have to leave? Oh, not, not quite yet. I can spend another quarter of an hour with you. A quarter of an hour? No more than that? I must take a train back at midnight. I had thought I had hoped that I have been so alone. Yes, yes. Come now. Let's make the most of our time together. Drink up now, and we'll talk of pleasant things. Such as... Yes, yes, such as what? Well, such as women, for example. Surely there are women in Paris who have taken your fancy. Oh, yes. Yes, many, many. Well, there now. You see? Things are not all black and gloomy. Of course, I have not met any women. I... I haven't the knack. I... I've never had it. You know that. Well, I thought that here, in Paris, you might, well, acquire it. Learn the ways of the world. Oh, no, I'm... I'm too shy. I, I can't find the courage. But I, I think about them. Oh, do you now? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. I do. I think of them a great deal. When I come back here to my lonely room, my cell, I think back in my mind to the delectable faces I have seen on the streets. You know what, Carl? No, what? In... My reveries, in my dreams of them, they are even lovelier than they looked on the streets. <laughs> what do you think of that? Do you mean to tell me that there isn't even one woman? I mean, one in particular. Just one. Oh, yes. Yes, there is one. One very particular one. Oh, that's better. Tell me about her. Tell you about her? How can I tell you about her? Well, start by telling me what she looks like. Yes. Well, her skin is very pale, very, very pale, white, like a white rose. Her eyes? Dark, dark and burning hot like sultry sun. Ah, better and better. Her hair? A shade of red, I think. You think? Yes, yes, her hair is reddish. Some might call it somber. But against the pallor of her skin... And her name? Her name? What about her name? Well, aren't you going to tell me the name of your lovely? She has no name. Why should she have a name? Godfrey, are you drunk? I have never given her a name. Why should I? She is my dream. You... You only dream of this woman? She's not real? She doesn't exist? She is real to me. She exists in my dreams. She lives in my thoughts by day. She haunts my dreams by night. Don't you understand? I love her. Oh, my poor friend. I shall always love her to the end of my days. So, you see, I am not quite as lonely as you thought. (laughs) Not at all. Not lonely at all, because she is with me at all times. I... Yes, I... I see. I... I think I see. Dear friend, it is getting on for midnight, and I have a train to catch. Will you walk with me to the station? 
of course I said I would, and I did. Though it was a stormy night, claps of thunder were rattling among the high houses of the narrow streets. Lightning flashed now and again, and the rain that began to fall seemed to drop into my heart as much as on the cobblestones. When I had watched the train depart, carrying off my only friend, I thought to return to my room, but something... A morbid recollection of our conversation, no doubt, drew me or forced me toward the Hotel de Ville and the Place de Grève. And in a sudden flare of lightning, I saw it. The horrible engine of death, the guillotine. <gasps> a violent tremor ran through me, and I wanted to run. But something held me rooted to the spot till the lightning burst forth again. And there, crouched by the guillotine, I saw a shadowy form all dressed in black, a female form seated on one of the lower steps of the scaffold, leaning forward, her face in her lap, her long, disheveled hair hanging to the ground. Her long, reddish hair. You are listening to a tale of terror and romance, told in the Gothic style. So-called Gothic stories were enormously popular in the 19th century, and they have never wholly ceased to be in demand by the reading public. Or for that matter the viewing audience, or, as now, the listening one. It is good to remember that the Gothic romance was assisted into our world by a gentleman from New York, Mr. Washington Irving. I'll be back shortly with our concluding act. It is true that Washington Irving was born in New York, but for reasons of health, he traveled extensively abroad and actually had living quarters for a time in the Alhambra, that centuries-old palace that still stands on a hill in Granada, a relic of the time when the Moors ruled a large part of Spain. In fact, you can go there today and see the very rooms he occupied. And uh, if you are very careful and no one is looking, touch the keys of the spinet on which he played. stood in the teeming rain and gazed at the woman in black who sat on the steps of the scaffold. There was something awful in this solitary monument of woe. She looked to be a woman of some distinction. Who could it be but some poor mourner whom the dreadful axe had made desolate? Who now sat here heartbroken on the strand of existence from which all that was dear to her had been launched into eternity. I could not leave the Place de Grève without speaking to her. Madame. <clears throat> your pardon, madame. I would not intrude upon your solitude, but... <clears throat> neither can I pass by and leave you here alone. Uh, the storm, the hour of the night. <clears throat> Let me lead you away from this gruesome place, sir. 
let me take you to your friends who will cherish and take care of you. Madame? I... I have no friends. Oh, madame, such a one as you. I have no friends on earth. The guillotine has taken them all. Is that what you mean? My heart weeps for you. But if there are no friends to give you refuge, at least let me take you home. I have no home. But in the grave. Oh, madame, I know I am a stranger to you. You have no reason to trust either me or my intentions. But if you would permit me to offer you my protection... I am a poor student, madame. I am not even a native of Paris. I live in the most humble hotel in the Latin Quarter. Such as it is, I would be honored, happy, if you would let me place my single room at your disposal on this most wretched of nights. You... You seem very kind. Very sincere. Thank you. Thank you, madame, for understanding. Uh, then you will come with me? Uh, you will permit me to enlist... As your protector. Monsieur, my fate lies in your hand. The storm had abated. All Paris was quiet. That great volcano of human passion slumbered for a while to gather fresh strength for the next day's eruption. I conducted my charge through the ancient streets of the Latin Quarter by the dusky walls of the Sorbonne to the dingy hotel where I lived. The hour was late and I had to ring for the concierge. Coming! Coming! Oh, don't be afraid of her. She's cross but really kind. Uh, ah, uh, thank you. Thank you, madame. I am so sorry to trouble you. You... You have someone with you? Yes, yes, uh, a friend. <laughs> well, come in, you and your friend. Thank you, madame. <sighs> if you need anything, refreshment of any kind... Yes, thank you. My room is on the first floor. You'll find it rather shabby, I'm afraid. <sighs> this hotel once belonged to a member of the nobility, but... Uh, only the remains of its old glory are still evident, and <laughs> well, you have to look very hard indeed to see them. Here we are. Here is the door, madame. I'll fetch a light. You can make yourself comfortable. There's a bed over there if you care to lie down. You must be tired. Ah, here we are. Here's our light. You are very kind to a poor stranger. <gasps> madame... What? What is it? You, you are so pale. But your hair, your, your eyes, your skin. They, they please you? Your black dress, your black cape, it's so simple. Oh, I am happy you like them. No jewels, no ornaments of any kind. Only a broad black band around your lovely neck with its diamond clasp. You are too perfect. You are too perfect by far, madame. May I tell you something of what is in my heart? I have loved you for a very long time. What's that? A very long time? I have seen you every night for months. 
and many times during the day. Have you been following me, young man? I have been dreaming of you. Asleep at night, entranced during the day. It has been your face, your form that filled my thoughts and fevered my imagination. Madame, I adore you. How how strange it all is. Strange, but marvelous. That you should have thought of me all this time. Thought of you, dreamed of you. Oh, 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 was it that you, young and ardent, have filled your head with thoughts of the other sex? It would only be natural. And your thoughts simply reappeared in your dreams. Madame, though I am of such a shy disposition, I have never had the courage to pursue my fancies into the world of reality. All this is known to a friend of mine. He was here today, a short visit to Paris. We talked here in this very room. I spent a good part of our time together telling him that while I thought of women as any man does, still, there was one in particular. One very particular one. Are you saying... My friend asked me what she looked like, this one particular woman. He asked me to describe her. Yes, and... And I said her skin is white as a white rose. Her eyes are dark like sultry suns, and her hair a certain shade of deep red. Oh, my dear. Surely such a miracle that you have come to life. That you sit here in my little room in all your beauty and desirability. I told my friend this evening, I said, do not pity me because I love this woman of my dreams and shall always love her. And what did he have to say to that, your friend? I think he understood At least he accepted what I said as truth, as my truth. But then it was time for him to take his train. We said farewell. I started to walk back here. And then... And And then we met by the guillotine. And I dared to speak to you. And I listened and believed you. And I brought you back to my humble room and here we are together. I tell you, it is a miracle. The miracle of my life. It is yourself. It is you come to life. It is you sitting next to me. Your hand I am holding. Your eyes I gaze into. It is your lips I desire. If I might only... Yes? If I might kiss those lips just once... Only one. Madame, my most beloved. Oh, my darling. Again. Again. My sweet angel, you give me courage to ask you something I never thought to ask. Yes, my love. Do you feel as I feel? Yes. Why should we separate, you and I? Our hearts are already united in the eye of reason and honor. We are as one. Oh, yes. You have no home, no family. Let me be home. Family, everything to you. Rather, let us be everything to each other. Here. Take my hand. 
I pledge myself to you forever. Forever? You say forever? Forever. Oh, then, my lover, I am yours. The next morning, in order not to disturb my beautiful sleeping bride, I crept cautiously and quietly from our bed and as quietly dressed myself and went forth early in the day to look for larger quarters since it was clear to me that my situation had so changed as to make the tiny student's room quite inappropriate. When I returned from my search, I stopped to speak to the concierge who quite clearly was taking a certain enjoyment in my clandestine affair. Hmm? Good morning, monsieur. Good morning. Will you be wanting a small repast, you and the lady? A coffee, perhaps? A croissant? Uh, yes, that would be very nice. Thank you. Uh, the lady has not asked for me. No. No, monsieur. Nor has she gone out. I've watched for her. No, she still sleeps in your room, I believe. Thank you. I'll be up in a moment with your coffee and croissant. Uh, thank you so very much. We'll both appreciate that. My love, it is I. I have been walking the streets looking for a better place for us to live. Two rooms, at least, by the river, if possible. Do you hear me? Well, come along, my sweetheart. Wake up now. The concierge is bringing us our breakfast. Well, come along. You cannot be comfortable lying like that. Your head hanging over our poor little bed. Your arm thrown over it. Well, let me move your arm, at least. Oh, but how cold you are. How very cold. Your, your hand is like ice. Oh, my God. There's no pulse. No pulse at all. And your face, pale, ghastly. Oh, no. Monsieur, I have brought breakfast for you and the lady. The lady? The lady is dead. Dead? In my house? Police! I'm fetching the police! Police! The gendarme arrived in short order. He found me kneeling by the side of the bed, gazing in horror and dreadful fascination at the lifeless face of the woman I had loved for so long. The woman who had finally given herself to me in a pledge of a lifetime of love. As the officer of the police entered the room, I looked up at him and saw him start back suddenly, a look of total amazement on his face. Great merciful heaven. How does this woman come to be here? Do you know her, monsieur? Let me come closer. Do you know who she is? I know who she is. I was there in the Place de Greve. When they chopped off her head, they guillotined her yesterday. I hardly know how to tell you what happened then. The policeman leaned over and unfastened the black collar with a diamond clasp that encircled the neck of my beloved. 
and horror of horrors, her beautiful head rolled upon the floor. And then I knew my most awful fear had been true all along. The fiend, the fiend had gained possession of me and I was lost forever, forever lost. There is a postscript to this story appended by Washington Irving, and I shall read it to you. Is this really a fact, said the inquisitive listener? A fact not to be doubted, was the reply. I had it from the best authority. The student told it to me himself. I saw him in a madhouse at Paris. I'll be back shortly. story is international. Starting with the castle of Otranto by the Englishman Horace Walpole, it was followed and improved upon by Honoré Balzac in France. And in America, it was carried on by Washington Irving and brought to a peak by the genius of Edgar Allan Poe. Oh yes, the horror story is here to stay. Our cast included Paul Hecht, Don Scardino, and Bryna Rayburn. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the truth. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Pressure Mills of the New Forest, England, caught 3,186 venomous snakes in 14 years with his bare hands. He was so skilled that he was never bitten. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the story of the sad chateau. The Chateau of Montal in France was built as a surprise for Robert de Balzac by his mother in the year 1534. However, it has inscribed on one wall, there is no hope left. The reason for this sad inscription is that just as the castle was completed, Mrs. Jeanne de Balzac received the tragic news that her son had been slain in battle nine years earlier, believe it or not.
and we are back for a final portion of our program. Again, we will be running a little long tonight, but uh, not more than uh, half an hour. Um, in fact, we're only about ten minutes over now. Uh, but uh, yeah, so <laughs> not a great great adaptation, um, and that's one of the reasons why I went with that. I, I was unable to find anything better. Um, a little long, and, and again, a lot of the extra material wasn't necessary. Again, that was because Radio Mystery Theater was an hour-long program. So yeah, they kind of fleshed it out a bit, which is fine. It wasn't bad. It wasn't done in a bad manner. I'm just saying, you know, I could have cut out half of it and, you know, we'd be fine. But, eh, we're not, you know, we're not on any time frame. But anyway, uh, let's, uh... Let's get the music out of the door. And uh, we'll quickly talk about what you, what you can expect to hear on Radio for Humans this week. Of course, tomorrow night we have Zombie Voodoo Boutiques. Time for Go to Bed. A uh, little bit of a shake-up in the format, but they will be finishing up Dorothy and the Wizard in Oz tomorrow night. So that'll be fun, of course. Uh, they'll be talking about their latest eBay shenanigans and uh, one or two episodes of Jerry of the Circus. Friday, of course, it came from Cleveland, which will feel which will feature a brand new mythical moment by yours cruelly. Uh, this one is my first um, foray into Hindu mythology, so I'm very excited about that. And, uh, you know, I'm going to give you, uh, you know what, I'm going to give you a sneak preview. The title is I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. So there you go. Of course, you can hear uh, both Time for Go to Bed and It Came from Cleveland, 7 p.m. Eastern on their respective nights, Thursday for Time to Go to Bed, 7 p.m. Friday, It Came from Cleveland, 7 p.m. Saturday night at 8 p.m., of course, we have Paul's Memory Bank. Hello, some comedy, some Superman stuff. Always a gas. Of course, Sunday, we'll have our Second Chance Sundays uh, block. Nine-hour block, I believe, at last count. Nine hours. But uh, it'll start with uh, It Came From Cleveland, Paul's Memory Bank. <laughs> Paul's Memory Bank. Dread Time Stories. Hi! And uh, to end the, the block, Time for Go To Bed. Of course, um, Monday and Wednesday morning at 8.30 Eastern, you'll ha you'll be able to hear the Tim Crumble Show, and then primetime uh, on Tuesday at 8 p.m. And of course, Thursday night, at, uh, right after Time for Go to Bed, you'll be able to hear uh, From the Bunker with Jody Hamilton. So, always a good time. And like I said, I'm very excited about Fridays. It came from Cleveland. My only regret is... Uh, I am not a participant because, uh, and I did give him a great joke. I'll, I'll and I'll share it now. Uh, they're talking about Mark Hamill, and again, one of the greatest voice actors ever known. And I remember it completely blew my mind when I found out he was the voice of Joker in Batman the Animated Series. And the thing is that I'm a very listener, listening-oriented person. What I hear is important to me. I pay close attention. I start to pick up on voices. So, for example, you could play me a Frank Welker role, no matter what role it is. I'll be able to tell you that's Frank Welker because I'm able to pick up on subtleties in their voice that don't change regardless of the character they're voicing. Like, I could, you know, if I didn't know Frank Welker was Megatron, you could play Megatron and say, that's Frank Welker. 
Um, and I picked up on that in Mark Hamill as well. And so the fun, the joke is that, remember, you cannot spell Mark Hamill without Arkham. Or no, is it you can't spell Arkham without Mark Hamill? Yeah, I think that was it. Waka, waka, waka. So there you have it. Very excited about that. Happy 70th birthday, Mark. Um, not that I know him personally. Um, but, boy, I wish I did. Because he he's just tremendously nice guy from everyone I know who's met him or who has an experience being around him just say he is one of the nicest people you have ever met and um, you know so but that's true of most voice actors I have interviewed a bunch of voice actors at anime week in Atlanta unfortunately I'm not going this year but uh, if you want to help me go next year please consider supporting us on patreon um, we do have uh, support at the dollar level for those of you who just kind of want to, you know, get me a coffee. Um, of course, we also have the $5, $10, and $15 levels, which all have the same benefits. Once we start getting in that, once I start, basically, once I get my first confirmed $5 plus pledge, I start producing bonus content. I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not going to start doing that until I get that first pledge just because I'm not producing content for people, you know, for some, you know, that people aren't listening to. Uh, I just don't have the time to do that. Uh, especially with the holiday season coming up. Um, I am working on some stuff for Dread Time Stories. We most likely will drop the season format after, after the end of this season, which will be um, October, the, the on-paper end is October 27th, but we are doing our holiday special, October 31st, Halloween night. Um, but chances are we're just going to not do seasons anymore. It's just going to be going to being a regular weekly show. I haven't made a final decision on that yet, but that said, um, the numbers are great. I've had, I think one time I had 15, you know, 13 to 15 people listening. Um, Wow. Today's the exact opposite. I've only got five, but um, my, you know, I I don't want you. So, like I said, we'll have a decision about that um before the end of the month, whether or not we're just you know, like I said, I may take occasional breaks of you know, like take the occasional week off just because I'm a human being. I got needs. I got, I need the occasional time, you know, downtime. Uh, but of course, we'll always try to have a show. Even if it's a back show or a pre-recorded show, um, and of course, like I said, um, our bonus content will always be either you know we'll we'll, we'll alternate between uh, bonus dread time stories just without our serial stuff because again the point is I want you to get something for supporting me, but I also don't want um, to leave my listeners who listen here. Uh, in a dust. So again, it would basically be a story, some commentary. I'll find some extra material to run, maybe. Um, but that would probably be it. Anyway. Um, so yeah, we're at the bottom of the show, which means it's time for our um, <laughs> sorry, Adam Brain No Make Smart Good. Um, it's time for our pod people segment. And why is my thing not working? 
come on. Convert format. There you go. Well, that's weird. For some reason, it's in the downloads folder and it shouldn't be, but that's okay. That's nothing that can't be fixed. Uh, so anyway, um, so this week, this week's pod uh, podcast that I'm uh, sharing with you is um, a mythology-focused podcast. Um, it's called. It's from the Parcast Network. And it's called Mythical Monsters. I really enjoy this program. At least I did. Um, it, it tends, it does do like dramatic um, enactment, you know, like tellings of these stories, including voice cast. Um, however, I have stopped listening since August because they made business decisions I disagree with. Um, they basically moved um, exclusively to Spotify, and I refuse to patronize Spotify as long as they allow an anti science, anti vax lunatic like Joe Rogan to be on their platform. Uh, you know, I mean, I feel bad um, because I, I like the programs, but at the same time, people, you got to understand that how, what, how you, you know, the media you consume and how you can, how you do so is a moral statement. People may not think like that, but, you know, if I go to a movie that was financed by Ben Shapiro someone I am diametrically opposed to in practically every respect, then what is happening is um, I am supporting that man with my dollars. People may not see it that way. I do. And so I'm not going to give my business to Spotify. And unfortunately, that means hurting a podcast I like. I mean, one listener isn't going to make that much, but I did send them a, you know an email through their website explaining exactly my issues and it's you know I understand you know and again I, I also don't like Spotify just because they demand too much control over their content they demand exclusivity exclusivity and I don't like that I want to be able to choose how I consume my podcasts I like to be able to keep episodes I enjoy so I can re-listen to them as time allows you can't do that with Spotify even if you pay um, and, and again, as I said before, with, um, with A Voice from Darkness, I'm just not a big fan of paywalls and exclusivity. I want, you, the wider the net you cast, the better off, the more people you're going to have to listen to. And it's a shame that, you know, like I said, their business decision has cost them a listen, at least one listener. I'm sure there's others who feel the same way I do. It's just... The big, the bit, the real deal breaker is Joe Rogan. I will not support him, and by patronizing Spotify, I am. But I also, like I said, I don't like this business decision. I don't like how restrictive Spotify is as a platform. Now, Spotify were like a regular podcatcher or podcast providing service, service that, and I can download it and do whatever I want with it, including keep an archive of episodes I enjoyed. Okay, I may be able to deal with that, but I, I, I don't like being told what to do. Anyway, here is the, um, uh, oh damn, <laughs> trailer for Mythical Monsters. Monsters. 
the great heroes of myth are known throughout the world. Their deeds are legendary, but what would these champions be without obstacles in their path, without quests to overcome, without monsters to challenge them? Dragons, sea serpents, giants, demons. They are primal symbols reflecting ancient truths the new ParCast original, Mythical Monsters, tells the stories of these beasts and asks what they represent to mankind. In our first episode, we'll cover the Norse Kraken, a sea monster that sprung from the bottom of the ocean to devour whole ships. Was the Kraken just a giant squid, or was it the physical manifestation of our fear of the deep? Then we'll follow the story of the Nemean lion, a massive predator that slaughtered the priests in the temple of Zeus. Was the Nemean lion just one more monster for Hercules to slay? Or was it a symbol of man's dominance over nature? Mythical monsters will also delve into the stories of more ephemeral creatures, such as the Grim Reaper, and lesser known beasts such as the Chinese Taotie. These monsters are the stuff of legend and nightmare. Parcast's newest original, Mythical Monsters, premieres September 30th with new episodes every Monday. It's available free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us each week on our journey to uncover the beasts of the past. We promise it'll be thrilling though we can't promise you'll return unscathed. So again, uh, I, I do enjoy the podcast. I'm not going to lie. I just disagree with their platform. If you enjoy, uh, if you think that might be something you enjoy, please check it out. But, but to kind of seal the deal, we do have a small clip from their episode about the Tanuki um, and the funny thing about Tanuki is, uh, they are known for having big balls. Literally. They, their, their defining characteristic is their large scrotum. <laughs> that is now something you know, and you can't unlearn it. Here's the clip. Korahiko stifled a yawn. He couldn't afford to sleep. Not tonight. He had a trap to spring. The thieves had come into his home for the last time, robbing him of jewels, of morsels of food, of bottles and bottles of sake. But not tonight. Korahiko had bolted the doors and barred the windows. When the thieves came for him, he would be ready with his knife. He must have fallen asleep. He jolted upright and saw three kimono-wrapped figures outside his door, trying to break in. Korahiko shouted as he drew his blade, running at the thieves. These vagrants had no respect for others. But then the thieves turned to him. He saw that they were not men at all. They were furry creatures. 
Their ears were pointed like devil's horns, and their long, furry cheeks and pinprick noses made them look very menacing indeed. But Korahiko's eyes were drawn down to their waists, where bulgy, fleshy scrotum sacs emerged from the folds of their kimonos. Tanuki. Korahiko never stood a chance as the fox-like creatures bashed him with their sacks, beating him until he was broken and bloody. They turned back to the door and flung their sacks against the boarded wood, breaking it down easily. In the morning, when Korahiko woke up, moaning in pain from his wounds, his house was ransacked. All of his sake was gone, and one of them had stolen his wallet. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling their stories, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creation of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose humanity's greatest fears. And there you go. Like I said, little little peek there. And listen, I'm not trying to discourage people, but I'm always going to be honest. I'm, you know, if I think that there's downsides, I'm going to tell you. Uh, Production-wise, it is brilliant. I love it. I just, like I said, I am not giving Joe Rogan ad dollars or whatever. The man's a freaking lunatic, and he—I mean, if I had my way, he would be locked into the, you know, in a padded cell for the rest of his life. I mean. The guy is telling his millions of listeners to take freaking horse paste rather than get a safe immunization. How do I know it's safe? I got it myself. But, uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, that's it for the program. Next week... Uh, we're going to be doing a, a story by Robert E. Howard. Um, now, of course, Robert E. Howard is mostly known for his work uh, on Conan the Barbarian and a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, Conan, um, Brennan, Mac, whatever, Jonah Hex. Uh, but he was also a writer of uh, what Lovecraft let, let's let, there we go. of what Lovecraft referred to as uh, weird fiction and so we're going to be doing uh, in the forest of and I'm not French so you'll have to forgive me if I'm making a mistake vide faire vide faire uh, a werewolf story so yeah it's werewolf week warwolf week on the show next week it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, we'll try and find an appropriate podcast. Strange Dr. Weird. Of course, four new Ripley's Bleed or Not shorts. And the Magnus Archives. Maybe I'll see if there's a werewolf-themed episode we can skip. You know, maybe it's in first ep uh, season. We'll see what we can do. 
Or we could just, you know, if you prefer, or let me know. Do you want to do, like, a themed episode of the Madness Archives if I can find it? Or do you just want to keep going to episode number seven? Of course, don't forget the Patreon at um, uh, patreon.com slash studio underscore Hebert. Link will be in the show notes along with links to everything else. Um, and that should go up sometime in the near future. So... Uh, hopefully by the end of the night. Again, everyone, thank you very much for listening. As always, I, I greatly appreciate your time and your patience and understanding with regards to uh, my being so late. Um, we'll be back next week. Same butt time, same butt channel. Uh, the real, the right time, hopefully. Um, but yeah. Everyone, again, enjoy the season. Remember, Halloween, objectively the best time of the year. And uh, we'll see you next week. Until then, unpleasant dreams. Whoa, 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 I forgot to mention. I know I mentioned it earlier, but all incidental music heard in this program is courtesy of Tabletop Audio. Tabletop Audio, uh, royalty-free, cost-free music for wherever you podcast, work, or play Dungeons & Dragons. Thank you very much, Tabletop Audio. Link to that will be in the show notes as well. Have a nice week. Bye!